Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to talk about why it's important to understand the way TV scripts are broken inside a writer's room and how to take the same process at home. So we're going to delve into why you need to have some form of a TV writing routine and maybe how that can resemble what the routine is like working on a show in a writer's room. It's really important to understand that TV works to a schedule. In any other kind of writing medium, say if you're a novelist, you can kind of do that at your own leisure and pace. You may have a deadline that's been put down by a publisher or an agent, but you know if you don't actually get it in on time, the world isn't going to end. You just have to take a little bit longer. Whereas in television, if you don't get that script in and time the show isn't going to go to air um you know, it's with feature scripts, you can have that script stuck in development for years. They call it development hell. Um, you can be trading drafts back and forth, and you can really just take it at your leisure when you can to get that done. You know, the film isn't going to happen until that script is done, and then they can just start the process from there. But TV has such a strict set schedule that if they don't have the script in time, there's going to be hell to pay. And, you know, the worst case scenario, they actually can't broadcast their show that week, and then the network is going to kill everyone. So, <laughs> um, you know, television doesn't does work on a clock like that. It's You really have a matter of weeks, not days or not months and years. Once you go from that outline, breaking it in the room to a first draft, a writer might be given on average maybe one to two weeks, depending on you know your genre and your show and all that kind of thing, maybe how detailed the outline is. But when you get under time pressure, especially later in the season when things are really coming down to the crunch, uh, you can it can be a matter of days or even hours for, for rewrites and last minute changes and that sort of thing. So, especially on multicams and that sort of thing. Uh, sort of shows. Oh, exactly. Multicams are constant, constant rewrites, watching rehearsals, getting feedback from actors, showrunner, director, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, to be able to manage this, this craziness, TV works on a very strict schedule. Right. And it goes beyond the actual drafting of a script. Uh, it's really vital for you to have some sort of routine and regimen even before you get on a writing staff. It's, it's, it's really important to understand kind of the whole process from breaking stories and, and uh, sharing ideas all the way down to rewriting. And the reason why that is as simple, it's because you will be more valuable as a staff writer if you already understand this entire process and you already master it. Those kinds of skills are invaluable in a room. There's also the aspect of, in my mind, TV writing or TV structure specifically is a very kind of like mathematical construct. Uh, and by that, what I mean is you only have a set amount of acts and you only have a set amount of pages to tell your narrative or your story. Mm -hmm. uh, whether that's like 30 pages and two, you know, three acts and a teaser or 60 pages and five acts or even seven acts on ABC. Working those muscles out before you step in your writer's room is critical because a lot, I think a lot of writers assume that, uh, or like reduce the craft to just, you know, the vomit draft or like just like linearly writing out stuff that comes to your head, uh, from a blank page on. And it is really so much more before that even happens. Yeah, you um, need to learn to work within those creative constraints and, and get used to training those muscles and not just sitting around and like waiting for the muse to strike you. And once you kind of like have developed those muscles and mastered the, those aspects of the craft, you'll really be able to to churn stuff out more quickly. I mean, ultimately, it's about being more productive. And TV writing is really about the amount of scripts you can get down and the good ones at that, not just, oh, I have this one perfect idea 
media and this one perfect script that everybody should look at. If you can figure that out, then anytime someone's like, well, what are you working on now? Or what else do you have? Then you'll actually have an answer for them because you've turned that stuff out. So now that we've looked at why you should have a running routine, uh, let's look at the whole TV running process from a macro view. What are some of the specifics of TV running compared to other screenwriting forms? Yeah, so it is a very structured kind of process. And although it changes from room to room and showrunner to showrunner and format to format, uh, you'll find very broadly there are a couple of sections which we're going to go into in more detail. So to give you an, an outline of that, um, the first is, you know, inception. <laughs> uh, really coming up with those ideas. Then the next is articulation or pitching. Uh, after that, you'll go through to outlining. From that, that's when you're starting to actually put it down on the page and get that first draft out, then go into rewriting. So we're going to now move in section by section and really break down what each of those involves for you. And also how you can take those approaches home and what you can do with the software or whatever tools you have at home. So uh, take it away for Inception, Chris Nolan. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Inception. Uh, it is. Is he still in the dream? <laughs> is he? Uh, yes, the answer is yes. Okay. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, generating ideas in a writer's room is arguably one of the most critical skills that you need to have. It, it is actually a basic skill, but it is definitely something you need to work on even before you're in a room. And the reason why that is is simple. Ideas are a dime a dozen. You know, you have like five to 10 people in a room and everybody's going to be constantly pitching ideas, stories, characters, beats, dialogues, whatever it is, jokes. And you need to be, you know, able to come up with a better version or a more interesting version on the fly. Mm -hmm. um, I just went into a, uh, a studio the other day to literally pitch ideas nonstop for episodes of a TV show they had. We would spend maybe three or four hours straight just going around in a circle pitching a new story idea. Like if you don't have the chops to be able to churn those out, then you're not going to get hired to do that. And I think it works on both uh, for both uh, specs and uh, pilots and uh, you really need to figure out ways, what are your ways of generating ideas? Mm -hmm. um, and so let's talk about that. What are, what are some of your ways, Nick? Uh, I mean, obviously for everyone, it is a personal thing as to how you actually go about coming up with the things that you want to write about. But, you know, in general, there are a few kind of, I don't know whether you would say methods or exercises or things that you can do and, and things in common that people tend to draw from. So, so like at its most basic level, sometimes things just come to you um, when you're out about and in the world. So it can be triggered by things that you see on the street, uh, out in the world as you're, you know, you're on a bus, you're driving your car down the 101, a uh, random thought just pops into your head. You could be browsing social media. I often get inspired by kind of like artwork, whether it's other movies, TV, reading novels, uh, graphic novels, poems, music, anything like that. It's like little kind of like these little nuggets that stick in your head there's something like whether it's a phrase from a song or whatever you're like oh that's fascinating you know then you stew on that for a while um right and it's also i feel like what's your own perspective on the material that you've heard or what really engaged with you on a personal level um so if you look at a show like revenge on abc mm -hmm. uh not many people realize that revenge is actually count of monte cristo it is literally count of monte cristo but transposed in the Hamptons and in kind of like this like rich family universe. And uh, Mike Kelly, who's a creator of Revenge, was basically inspired by this theme of 
you guessed it, revenge. Uh, <laughs> it, it's really about this person coming back from the ashes and enacting this wrath that she has uh, over, over the people that basically decimated her family and her father. Yeah. Um, and it's just kind of these broad themes from the books, but transposed into a TV show. It could be as simple as just like a one word theme, or it could be, like I was saying, a, a lyric from a song, or maybe a, just a, a side character in another movie or something you've watched that really kind of takes your interest and stays with you. There's little things that kind of like stick around in your mind. I feel like that's a sign to you to be like, oh, let's explore explore this and delve a little deeper and see what I can pull out from this. Why am I connecting to this so much? Why is it fascinating me? How can I turn it into a story? Yeah, I mean, I often uh, just creepily stalk people in the street and overhear what they're saying. And uh, I note it down in <laughs> my notebook. Stay away from Alex on the street, guys. <laughs> Really? You actually like follow people and right, listen to their conversation? <laughs> that is right, something no. that people recommend. I, I, like not that necessarily, but, but, but say sitting, you're in a diner or something. They're like, yep. hey, keep a little pocketbook on you or on your phone or whatever. And like write down, if you hear people talking about something that's interesting or they have like a very unique voice or something like that, um, you know, put all that down and you can use that later as a character or something. Yeah. In terms of my own kind of like inspirations on that level, I, oftentimes when I watch a show, I will have my phone or something uh, akin to that to take notes if suddenly I have an idea of uh, for a solution to a problem I have in a specific scene or uh, a piece of dialogue that uh, really intrigued me. Uh, and But those components were initially from the piece I was watching. And maybe you can get some uh, epiphanies just by watching uh, Big Bang Theory. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so one example of that for me was uh, one of my favorite movies when I was a kid was Austin Powers. And there's this scene in it that always stuck with me of Austin runs over this henchman in a steamroller like so slowly. <laughs> it's just like the scene goes for a good like five minutes as he's just like constantly cutting back and forth. He's like, no, trying to get out of the way. And Austin's like, get out of the way. You've got plenty of time. And so he eventually runs this guy over. And then what we see after that, which is where the, the brilliant kind of comedy comes in, is that the the company, the evil head, like corporation, calls his family, and it's like his son's birthday at a bowling party, and he's like, "I'm sorry, but your dad was just killed by this like international secret agent." And he's like, "He won't be coming to your birthday party, Timmy." And it's like, "Holy shit! All of these guys have families. They have wives and kids. They're probably not bad guys. Uh, you know, they're just doing what they're they're doing for their job." Um, so I thought more about that and what it kind of ended up evolving into is I really wanted to heighten that idea. And I'm like, well, let's take it to the next level and think about like super villains instead of just the henchmen so that I have more possibility for the story world. Um, and I'm like, what if a supervillain had a family and he had to go back and, uh, you know, <laughs> go to his kid's piano recital and all that kind of thing. It's like almost that classic trope of the, you know, the, the liar, liar, like I'm so busy being mm -hmm. a lawyer at work. I can't make it to my kids things. But what if your job was to be like an evil, well-dominating supervillain and you still had to do that? So I took that idea and I turned it into um, this animated sitcom pilot called Mr. Doom. Um, and it was really just an idea that was triggered by watching a scene from another movie, but I'm not stealing the idea of that movie. It's, you know, you're, you're borrowing and you're being inspired by things. Absolutely. I think this, there are quite a few of those thought exercises about twisting the narrative of a known story or a show, whatever it is, and then uh, viewing it from a different perspective. I mean, the obvious example, like a, a, a recent example of that is the movie Ma Maleficent. Uh, that was really about the evil sorceress in the universe of Cinderella. Mm -hmm. um, and every story about Cinderella was obviously about Cinderella, but mm -hmm. uh, the screeners decided, or Disney also decided to kind of switch the perspective into a more darker kind of like fantasy feature 
um, about Maleficent's character. Yeah, there was another one, Snow White and the Huntsman, which was mm-hmm. almost told from at least one perspective of the Huntsman instead of that. So it's like that. That's a great little thought exercise, and I think it's one that they actually give to people in um, colleges and that kind of thing. I think that's how Snow White and the Huntsman came about. I was listening to a podcast with uh, Evan Daughtry, who was the writer of that, and that's literally where his idea came from, was this exercise they gave him in college, being like, tell a traditional fable, fairy tale, or whatever from the perspective of a different character in it, or, you know, change something slightly about it and turn it into a new story. Yeah, and you can also extrapolate that to the world itself. Uh, Most of science fiction is based on this idea of, like, what if, you know, aliens showed up, or Mm -hmm. what if you have the example of children of men uh where it is uh, about what if nobody can conceive uh anymore mm-hmm. and kind of the descent into uh madness yeah. that follows often the best sci-fi worlds and and ideas come from just changing one little thing about society everything else is recognizable even if it is in the future or the near future um and then one key thing has changed and you explore all of, like the butterfly effect out from that of how that warps the world and people and all that kind of thing rather than changing absolutely everything about the world and making it so far unrecognizable that you know you need to spend half an hour making the rules of the world for people to even understand what's going on exposition man <laughs> yeah it's all about uh, it's all about exposition uh Another technique that I often use is to really think about what are the things in the world that I care about deeply, you know, societal issues and, and things like that, and then try to turn them to find like a story that fits around that, that I can really explore those themes and those important messages. Not that I'm, you know, wanting to preach a message or anything, but if there's something that just connects with me so deeply and that I feel is really important to be explored on the screen and to kind of raise awareness and get things out, then I'm obviously going to be really passionate about writing that and the story ideas are going to come to me. So, um, you know, for example, you might be very passionate about kind of like all the racial inequality that's going on at the moment. You might want to find a really great story to tell about that and explore a character through that or, you know, feminism or anything like that where it's really going to like fire you up. Um, that's going to be a great kind of like spark for you to find a brilliant story to tell that through. Yeah, I mean, it also translates well to specs. Um, you have a lot of procedural shows, whether uh, legal dramas or criminal cases, criminal shows that are about those right from the headlines kind of stories. You can look at a show like The Good Wife, which I always go to for my, or like I used to go to for my uh, kind of like rip from the headlines uh, cases, mm-hmm. especially that I was really, um, I really appreciated the way the show dealt with more technological issues where um, there are quite a few, besides, let's say, Mr. Robot, for yeah. example, like most shows don't really cater uh, or address well those kind of like new, uh, newer uh, tech issues. Um, you know, just look at CSI and it's all about enhance, enhance, enhance. You mean you can't uh, solve everything by mashing the keyboard? And, ex- and ex- <laughs> exactly. I'm um, hacking the mainframe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's another plot of every uh, sci-fi uh, shows. Yeah. Um, but uh, just to go back to uh, Good Wife. Um, Good Wife always focused on legal cases, obviously, but um, a lot of them were about more um, obtuse or lesser known uh, technological kind of approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for example, for my spec, that I wrote on The Good Wife, I picked the issue of patent trolling. Uh, So this idea that you have these uh, mysterious companies uh, manned by no one just renting out offices in the middle of like Texas and suing people or companies 
just because they have the patent for a specific technology, but it's uh-huh. not really specific. It's usually mm-hmm. really broad, like the ability to like scroll down on like, a <laughs> device or whatever it is. And off of that, they make millions, if not billions of dollars. And just out of settlements because they don't want to take it through court. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of like a long story, but basically it is really, it is this really shady uh, aspect of of um, of the law and especially patent, uh, mm-hmm. where you do have these companies just they're uh, trolling, figuratively speaking, yeah. uh, these these people to make millions of dollars. Didn't someone sue Apple for the use of the lowercase i? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure someone did. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, Apple is actually in the, in the in that world too. I mean, you can look at Samsung. I mean, even bigger companies get sued. But anyway, for my spec, I I was inspired by those kinds of elements of the law, and so I transposed those into my my own spec. That's great. I mean, and one very official way to do this that is very, very common in, in Hollywood is optioning the rights to articles that have been written about these kind of issues and things like that. So it's not just like a news story necessarily, but someone has actually taken the time to go and research and uh, get permissions and all that kind of thing to um, to tell these stories. So anything from like the New York Times or Wired or any of those magazines where they do these in-depth kind of articles, um, you can find the agency that represents that public and then you can option the rights to the story within that article. Um, so that's kind of like a more convenient way than going and finding this person's like life rights and things, you know, so it yeah, can get complicated, it, it, but more or less, if there's a fascinating story that, that has a huge amount of traction on one of these publications, um, people will go and scramble to get the rights for it and turn it into a movie. Yeah, I feel like, isn't that how Spotlight happened? I think uh, so, with, yeah. um, I was going to say Golden Globe, not Golden Globe, Boston Globe yeah. uh, <laughs> articles. I'm sure it had a few Golden Globes. Sure. Too. Well, sure. Another way I enjoy kind of like learning, you know, it's all about learning and discovering new things. Uh, so one way I go about it is I have this little tab on my taskbar on Chrome called random Wikipedia article. And I occasionally will just click on the button and it will, you know, pop up a random Wikipedia articles. Now, 90% of the time, it's just some like useless fact I have no uh, interest <laughs> in. But occasionally, uh, it will actually, it will lead me into a rabbit hole of uh, reading a bunch of Wikipedia articles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure that helps you get writing done. I know, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's an excuse. It's an excuse. Uh, and hold on, let's see if I can actually click on it right now and see what uh, what happens. Ooh, let's see if we get drum roll. All right, open drum, <laughs> drum roll. Random article gave me... Anuario Luis Herrera Solis is a Mexican politician affiliated with the Sparrow Party. Uh, riveting stuff, really. There's literally three lines in this uh, in this Wikipedia page. So uh, yeah, but even you know, even if you just had that, if you wanted that as like a writing prompt for some like free mm-hmm. writing or something, you could be like, cool, let's tell the story from the perspective of like a corrupt Mexican politician, and then the cartel comes after him, or you know, all these possibilities could come out from that. So you never know how that could help. Absolutely. And uh, now let's look at uh, ways you can collect those ideas. Uh, how do you do it, Nick? It's pretty basic. I just kind of like use the notes, Apple notes on my, my iPhone. Um, when I had a an Android phone before that, I would use Evernote. I think what's really key about that is finding something that will actually sync up to your computer so you don't have to go back and type them all out again. Absolutely. I mean, I use personally, I mean, you use Apple notes. Uh, I use Google Keep. Uh, mm-hmm. Google Keep is a free app, I believe, just for Android, but uh, it does have the ability to not only sync online, but also you can record audio. You can uh, jot notes with your, you know, finger as in drawing oh, cool. on the on the screen. You can um, record a short clip, anything like that. Yeah. Um, so it's really nice if you just have this idea and you just want to like talk into your mic for a second. Uh, yeah, you never know when inspiration is going to strike, or you need to kind of remember something. Don't ever <laughs> fall into the trap of being like, "I'll remember that for later," because you won't. It's like yeah. when you like wake up and you're like, "I had this awesome dream. This would be cool." 
cool for a story. I'll write it down after I have a shower and you come out and you're like, oh, what was that? Yeah, there's a reason why a lot of people have a notebook by their bedside so they can remember those dreams. Uh, as soon as they wake up, they write whatever they were dreaming about. Otherwise, they'll forget it in yeah. like two minutes. So, I mean, if that works better for you, you can definitely carry a physical book or journal and notepad. A lot of people have those little moleskin ones around with you. If you're mm -hmm. someone who really prefers that sensation of writing things down by hand sometimes, uh, you know, it's actually shown, I think, that writing things by hand will help you remember them better as well, just because there's more connections in your brain and that kind of thing. But as long as you have it written down and kept somewhere safe, you're okay. Uh, you know, you can carve them into your arm with a butcher's knife. I think that that's a really effective. No, yeah, you can, uh, <laughs> you can also do the memento trick of uh, tattooing every idea on your body. Yeah, just whatever works for you, to be perfectly honest. So. So moving on from the idea stage, the inception stage, uh, I was waiting for you to play the song. <laughs> um, the next step that kind of, well, I mean, there's a little interim step here, which people, a lot of people call background processing. And what that is, is really just thinking about those ideas and having it going on in the back of your head. You don't have to actively be trying to brainstorm and break it down or whatever, but the more time you just kind of stew and ruminate on something, you'll find that little branches come off from it. And you're like, what if this happens? And what if that happens? So just kind of keep it in your head as you're going around during the day and see what comes from that. Yeah, we don't categorize it as kind of like a standard process as much as it is an ongoing thing that happens creatively where mm -hmm. you just kind of continuously <laughs> think about it. You know, when you brought up the shower, like if you go into the shower and just think about dialogue or prose or whatever it is, um, even beyond just the generating idea step, like beyond the inception, uh, it's probably going to happen at outlining. It's probably going to happen at drafting uh, all these different uh, steps. Yeah. It's like having a little kind of like task bar in your head from the computer. And it's like <laughs> very slowly ticking up in percentage for processing. And eventually you're going to get to hundred percent and be like, this is the idea. Yeah, of course, it's, it's not as clear as that. But anyway. <laughs> So the next stage that uh, you go to after coming up with an idea is um, being able to really articulate that idea and pitch it to people. And I know some people might think that's putting the cart before the horse, like, oh, no, I want to write everything down and have it all finished before I even tell anyone what it is. But I, we don't really think that's the best way to go about it. The sooner you're able to explain your story in as few words as possible, the better your story will actually be, because every story has kind of a true essence to it. And summarizing it in as few words as possible will really make you or force you to focus into the core of what your show, your episode, whatever it is, your story is about. The trick is really to make other people interested in it in the shortest amount of time as possible. It's like right. if you can give them that that little hook, that thing that's like, wow, that's fascinating, and they will want to know more about it, then you're doing the right job. I mean, I have this theory that you can summarize any good or great TV show into one word. And that one word will be kind of like the ultimate litmus test of every scene, character, story, arc happening in the show can be defined by that one word. So the examples I give are for Breaking Bad, this idea of consequence. Uh, everything that happens on the show can be categorized as the effect of something else that happened in the show. It's kind of like the snowball effect of all these different events. Game of Thrones, I feel like it's the most obvious. I feel like power is the most, the more evocative uh, theme of the show. Uh, and Six Feet Under will be death uh, in my mind. I feel like it's the kind of step where um, if you have, it, it may take a while, but once you figure out 
kind of what your key word is or your key theme is for your show or your pilot, by that point, I think you'll have crystallized a lot of that internal background processing and all these different stories and characters. It will really become that litmus test of figuring out what's a good scene to keep and what's uh, a good piece of dialogue that will illuminate what my character is thinking. It's a really cool test. It's like every time you come up with something like, does this uh, help advance the point of you know power or, or death and that kind of thing? You know, Some people might refer to that as like a central unifying theme. Like what is the the one thing that's carrying through this whole show that it's really about deep down and you can expand that as well you can we'll talk about this more in another episode about theme but you can expand that into a central thematic question so if it's about power it might be like what lengths will people go to to keep power or to gain power and that kind of thing and you know that's maybe the same in that cast of cards as well so you'll find all those commonalities but um yeah if you can boil it down to that then i think you're, you're doing well and also one thing i just want to say is that a lot of people when they're like, I'm writing this script and they're like, what's it about? And then they talk to you for the next like 10 minutes, just trying to sum up the story or they tell you beat by beat what happens in the story. That's usually a bad sign that you don't really know what your story is about deep down, you know, especially if you've already finished writing the script. If you have to list all of the events one by Mm -hmm. one in order to explain your story, you really don't understand your story. Think about like if someone went and saw your movie uh, in the theater and then someone's like, oh, cool, that sounded interesting. What is it about? And they're like, well, then they sum it up in like a couple of sentences or a paragraph or, you know, everyone talks about the elevator pitch if you happen to run into steven spielberg in the elevator and you're like oh my god i've got this script it's about blah 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 by the time the elevator doors open uh you should have said enough to make him interested and be like cool send it to my assistant or yeah hold on i've got this uh 10 page bible i want to read to you right now <laughs> yeah i'm uh, going to tell you step by step everything that happens in my script steven do you mind just like staying in this elevator for the next two weeks part one episode one <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I feel like that sums up uh, being able to articulate and pitch your idea fairly well. And the more you refine that, even as you're writing, keep coming back to like the log line for your show and and be like, has this changed? Is there a better way to put this? Is this actually what it's still about by the end of it? Because it will change. In the writer's room, it really is all about how you express your idea. When we say pitching, it's really about expressing an idea in a way that will make people excited about it this point it's not kind of pitching to sell it to someone or whatever it's uh you know in the very very early stages of the writer's room you will all literally be going around throwing out your best ideas for what should happen in this episode or what should happen over the season depending on where you know where you're at so that's what we mean by pitching stuff yeah these are not like professionally targeted pitches it's just kind of the impetus of those ideas Now let's move on to what many people consider the most important aspect of TV writing, and that is outlining. Outlining, I would say, is about like 80% of the work, even though Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of it uh, may look like a finished draft. I think there's so much that goes on before you even type uh, fade in or fade out or uh, cut to black. And this is basically what the writing rooms are for. It's just this idea that you have multiple brains to break, quote unquote, an episode and figure out every obstacle, every beat, every scene in that overall episode. As a staff writer on a typical season of TV, you will write one script, maybe two if you're lucky, Um, like actually sitting down and writing the first draft of that script. So the vast, vast majority of what you come in and do every single day is going to be helping outline the episodes with everyone else and and polishing other people's episodes. There's one skill to take away from this entire podcast. I feel like outlining, uh, understanding what outlining is and mastering it is the most important of all them. 100%. Now, let's look at the two different kind of like macro steps to outlining. The first step is more about 
about breaking the beats and the broader story movements. And then the second one will be more about kind of putting it all on the page and on a more micro aspect, I would say. Uh, so let's talk about the first one. So when we're talking about the broad story movements, um, we're thinking on a very macro scale. It could be as broad as this is one sentence to sum up each of the three acts or five acts. So, you know, this is the overarching movement of that act. And then you could go down a little deeper and be like, what are like the key kind of story beats within this act? You might come up with three or five or six, or, you know, whatever it happens to be. Like, what are the, the like absolute minimum units of story um, that we can express this this thing in for it to make sense. And then in that later step, you're going to go down and, and break up each of those into to scenes and, and actions and events. And slug lines and all that stuff. Exactly. Um, and it can be both on the kind of like the more macro level of the whole season or the whole arc of every character over multiple episodes or most of the time it's just going to be an episode by episode case. Think of it as kind of like a cork board with a bunch of index cards lined up on that board. And um, the rule of thumb is usually to have like one board per episode although it's like every room is a little bit different so on like a whiteboard in the writer's room if you've got it for the episode they will often have columns for each act so act one two three and drama four five etc and then you will place index cards or um, something you can kind of move around and whatever to show the individual either scenes or beats of that act within those columns it's really important to understand that this step is very visual because you have so many kind of different stories a b c d whatever it is and you have multiple acts so it's it's kind of like this this juggling act of understanding not getting lost in the story and understanding kind of like oh where is this character at this point in time so usually the way most people do it is if they have index cards in their rooms uh, every index card will be colored differently depending on each story on the on the season level it's really about figuring out how every episode progresses the story and progresses the characters um, it's about figuring out how can you fit kind of the tentpole moments in that season especially on, on genre shows you'll have people in the room that are more well-versed in in that universe or that world. So um, for example, Lost, uh, they had this script coordinator called Greg Nations, who um, was kind of the keeper of the Bible and every writer would kind of like go back to him and figure out, oh, is this accurate towards where we are trying to do or does this answer the question or whatever it is? Mm -hmm. Does it repeat what we've already done? Is it too close to, you know, especially when you get into a very long series, you don't want to kind of do the same thing over and over again. The same with Game of Thrones with Brian Cogman, who was the assistant to Benioff and Weiss, uh, the creators of the show, and obviously has since joined the writing staff, but um, he kind of like helped write the series Bible, aligning kind of the characters and the backgrounds of everyone. And that kind of information was distributed both on the writing side, but also for cast and crew. And even in comedy and sitcoms, uh, when I was working on The Muppets, our writer's room had a very broad season arc. I don't think it was anywhere near as detailed as you would find in a drama. For example, let's say we had episodes one to 13. There wasn't even necessarily a, you know, a major season arc point in every episode. It could be episode one and three and seven and nine and 12 and whatever. So one of the arcs was Kermit and Miss Piggy's romance. How they broke up at the very start of the season and then they're slowly kind of like coming a little bit back together and they get driven apart again. And then at the very end, they kind of like, you know, reunite or do they, you know? So um, there, there wasn't always a beat of that 
every episode um, on that macro level, but at least there was a broad through line so that by the time we reached the end of the season, there was some kind of continuous story to it. Now, let's look practically at what that looks like. So as we said, there's, there's going to be either a cork board or a whiteboard where you can kind of visualize every scene or beat uh, of the story. The way that works at home, every person is different, obviously, but uh, for me, I use kind of more virtual cork boards. So there's this software called Scribner that's both available on Mac and PC that kind of offers quite literally a virtual cork board you know you can even change the background of it um and you can kind of move around the index cards and figure out visually kind of every scene uh, where it all fits i do a lot of my stuff on my computer as well but i find that when i get to that index card stage i really like to have them physically in my hand to be able to kind of like put them down on a board or on my bed or wherever and move them around so i tend to use the the final draft index cards which you can they will generate them uh, automatically if you click on that kind of tab uh, based off of your slug line so every scene will give you an index card and then you can go in and write a little description of it or you can print it out and write it by hand if that helps uh, and one thing is i do recommend using index cards whenever you can but i don't necessarily use them every time. Sometimes I get lazy. Sometimes I feel like I have a really good grasp of the story and I don't quite need to go to that level. So I use them more so when I'm having problems with the structure or especially when I'm rewriting, I found it really useful to be like, which scenes aren't integral to this story? What can I cut? What can I switch around to make it stronger? But that said, maybe if I'd done all that from the start, they wouldn't have been there in the first place. So I know would have ended up with the tighter first draft. So I, I do highly recommend index cards uh, as a, a method of beating out your story. For sure. I mean, it's also a question of like space, even virtual index cards are really useful because uh, in drama when you reach like you know 50 to 60 scenes and have to like outline that process my mind works better at kind of like dealing with it virtually where I can cut and paste scenes and move them around I think um, in drama you've got a lot more to keep track of so I can certainly see why it's so useful for that but then on the flip side of that in comedy everything has to be so tight that you mm -hmm. really want to make sure you're not wasting any space in any scenes we don't waste scenes in drama either <laughs> come on come on man but that actually leads us to the second step of outlining, which is more about outlining it on the page. In terms of the actual product of the outline, there's different terms for different folks. Some people call it a beat sheet, an outline, a scene breakdown. Uh, I call it an outline. Shows like Flying Skies even call it like beat sheets, depending on, on the person. But the bottom line is actual document is really about putting down the actual beats on the page as in, in prose and text in a linear fashion. Uh, and maybe you can expand on them, uh, expand them with slug lines or anything like that but it's really just about getting the specific details of every scene right before you even write dialogue or anything like that. It's really up to whatever works for you, but so my personal definitions of those terms and how I use them, um, I would call, what I would call a scene breakdown is in a final draft document, you have slug lines for every scene and then plain language descriptions of the events of that scene. Um, other people might call that an outline. Um, I do. <laughs> yeah. To, to me, an outline is a little bit broader. It's kind of like a one pager or a treatment for the episode. It's like, you know, the, the overall what happens in the acts and the major events and that kind of thing. You know, almost a paragraph of prose for, for each act. I'm not sure whether this is a, a difference between comedy and drama or it's just a personal thing for me. I think I might have learned it from Alan Sandler's TV writer's workbook. Um, and then my definition of a beat sheet is broader again. It's literally the kind of like bullet points of broad story beats before you even turn them into uh, an outline or a scene breakdown or individual scenes. Right. I mean, my, my own definition of an outline is slug lines with a paragraph of prose. Um, it's not as granular as really digging deep into the exposition shots or like those kind of like one-off scenes uh, to set up another scene. But it really is all about giving um, kind of a more detailed overview of 
every setup and every beat in the story. Yeah, it's like units of story meaning. So you're not going to include establishing shot of house or whatever. You're just going to include right. like what happens inside that house that's relevant to the story. And I think we each have kind of a different approach potentially. I mean, you could use Final Draft or even Word because it's kind of like a prose writing format. But um, when you outline, do you kind of like write through the whole outline scene by scene or do you kind of jump around and start with other scenes in different places? So when I turn my outline or scene breakdown into the script, it's Itself, um, I find it, you know, the, the whole idea behind that is you can literally just take the description that you wrote for the scene and uh, either delete it or move it or whatever, and then start writing the the description and the action and the character dialogue and whatever from that. So I will most often start from the start just because I feel like having a clear picture of your opening and stuff is, is important. But if I reach kind of a tricky spot or one that's a really big scene and requires more thought, I will very happily jump around and come back to it. Uh, I've heard one method is to go and write the scenes that interest you and excite you the most first. Um, and then once you've written that, then write the one that excites you the most after that. So every time you're writing the scene that you're most excited about, and it helps motivate you to actually get in and, and do that. Um, and I also write with a writing partner, so we can like split scenes up and be like, all right, you take this scene, I'll take that scene. Half the work. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you come back and put it into the document and just be careful to go back and see if that changes earlier scenes or if, you know, if you're tweaking things that might affect other things you've already written if you're not doing it linearly. I might myself also jump uh, scene to scene. For television specifically, I kind of like to work around my temple moments, which are often the act breaks. And once you figure out either the ending of an act or the ending of an episode, I feel like it's, it's easier to kind of go back to the beginning and then figure it out from there. Um, it's a bit like, you know, it's like a filling the blanks kind of scenario where you have this puzzle and you have missing pieces, but you've, you've figured out the corners of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. So now it's about kind of like filling up the rest of the story. <laughs> And now that we've looked at the outlining process, let's talk about what most people are potentially interested in, which is the actual drafting, uh, not the fantasy league kind, but uh, <laughs> really just the writing on the final draft document. Mm -hmm. This is what most people think of when they think of screenwriting and, and writing for television. They're like, yeah, it's sitting there and it's writing all the dialogue and it's writing the, you know, transitions and <laughs> whatever else. But, you know, as we said, outlining really is the vast majority of writing. But once you get to this stage, that's when everyone gets really excited. And like, I can really finally see the, the end product of what I'm doing. So um, in TV, what usually happens is after the room has broken the outline and they're happy with it, they will send away an individual writer or writing team to go away and do a first draft. Um, so they'll lock themselves in a room and they will write for the next couple of days or week or however long they've been given. And then uh, they'll kind of come back with that later. Um, but one showrunner that I know of in, in comedy, um, he made the whole room write the script line by line, page wow. by page up on a big projected screen in the room. Um, so some people do it like that. How long did that take? <laughs> well, let's just say... Uh, those scripts were constantly late to the point of us receiving the drafts five minutes before the production meetings and no one on the team has had a chance to read them. So um, I don't know if there's any correlation between those two <laughs> things or it was something else entirely. Is it entirely. just causation? <laughs> I don't know. But uh, I feel like that's not as common a technique. Most people will send away writers to work on things and then bring them back. But you never know, depending on the whims of your showrunner. Uh, on the drama side, I feel like I've seen two kind of different writer's room format. One is the more traditional communal table with 
people breaking episodes and then there's a staff writer or an EP person that is going to be sent out of the room and then is going to write that episode. Now, the other format that is more rare, uh, but is definitely a thing sometimes is the kind of the Dick Wolf model. I don't know if he invented it, probably not, but uh, the model of uh, giving every writer a script separately from the room uh and so it's just kind of like a one person writer's room mm. uh and it's kind of like what we are talking about right now uh, what really, does he actually give them to write that script what it's is more about i believe it's more about people pitching uh individual stories and then right. every individual will be assigned uh, that specific story or maybe someone else's oh, story and then they break it all themselves and they right? sort of yeah it's kind of like more of a classic feature i guess angle of it mm. um it is kind of closer to what we're talking about right now in terms of figuring out all these different steps when you're alone. Uh, it's at like home. what you're writing at home kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, although they do have offices. One piece of trivia that you might be interested in is when they send away writers to do these things, usually from the start of the season through the end, uh, it will go in order of seniority. So the showrunner and an EP or whatever will write episode one, then the next highest EP or, or whatever will write episode two, then the co-EPs. And so by the time you get around to maybe episode seven, eight, nine, ten, depending on your, your room, uh, that's when the staff writers get to go. It's also the case that staff writers usually, for their first script, get coupled with an EP level yes. person. Oh, yeah, very, very, very common. But as we said, it's usually more of a communal experience than a solo one. With that said, let's talk about how we do things at home. The number one thing is now that you've outlined your script, there should not be this kind of like blank page fear uh, mm -hmm. or excuse. Uh, you kind of have this path through writing those scenes out from your outline. So how do you do things, Nick? Like I said earlier, I like to just take that basic description of the scene under the slug line and start writing it out as a, like I'll kind of like move it up to the top or the bottom and I will think about my opening image of the scene. I'm like, what's the first thing we see? And then dive into the the dialogue and that kind of thing. Sometimes I have decided that it was easier for me, particularly in comedy, to write all the, if, if the scene is a, a, like an interaction between two people, I might write all the dialogue and come back and fill in the action later right. once I know what it needs to work around. Um, so there are multiple ways of doing it, but essentially I find it, you know, so much easier once you have that description there, you're not it's not this huge Herculean task of writing a whole script from start to finish. It's just tiny little kind of like milestones and accomplishments. Like, yes, I finished this scene. Awesome. Let's move on to the next one. I mean, it's just, again, this building block analogy of filling in the blanks where, uh, and my, my own, uh, process is very similar where I will go into specific scenes and will kind of like brainstorm dialogue and we'll write it maybe in a text file, just like just the bare bones kind of like dialogue mm -hmm. and then paste it into final draft. And then through that, I'll expand into prose or whatever the dynamic is or vice versa. If it's more of a visual scene. Yeah. There's a cool technique that I've been trying to use lately uh, with my writing partner that I think uh, Dan Harmon uses a lot. And it is essentially uh, instead of like sitting there and belaboring, deliberating on, you know, the perfect, you know, line of action or, or dialogue, especially you put like the bad version of it. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, I think this is common with a lot of people is just like, so, so if someone is meant to like give this speech about like how much this other character means to them and that they love them and they want them back or whatever, instead of like actually doing it as best they can, <laughs> they might write, 
I love you and I want you back because I'm really sad. Yeah. And then you can go back later and be like, right now, how do I actually turn this? So you, once again, you're breaking it down into a smaller step. Again, you've got that placeholder there. It's, it's, you know, at least you know what needs to be said and then you polish it and turn it into what it's meant to be later. Good is the enemy of done, right? Uh, that's a con <laughs> saying that I aspire to uh, like break that. every day. Another way I get kind of inspired in that step is by reading other scripts from shows that are similar to the ones I write, either in tone or in prose or in dialogue or even structurally, uh, although that would be more in the outline step, but nonetheless, um, that kind of research uh, aspect. And you can kind of look at the two kind of like extreme of the spectrum where on one end, you may have a script that's closer to like Alien. Uh, if you haven't read the script of Alien, I will, uh, I will kill you. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you haven't read the script of Alien, I heavily recommend you do. I think probably like one of the greatest uh, screenplays of all time in my mind, mm-hmm. not just because of the story or the dialogue or anything like that, but really um, more to do with the way he wrote every scene. And um, the way he did it was basically every paragraph is obviously a new shot, but mm-hmm. also specifically every Paragraph is not a paragraph. It's actually just one, two words. So it's literally the widest kind of like uh, page you've seen because it's really just like one line of three words, then one line of two words, then one line of one word, and then like three lines of dialogues, and then back to one line of prose or whatever it is. And it's yeah. kind of this very minimalistic uh, way of writing. That's now, cool. um, the other end of the spectrum, uh, I already brought the show earlier uh, in another episode, and that is How to Get Away with Murder, uh, which is arguably the most uh, editorialized uh, prose writing I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. Uh, you actually have scenes. You have these scenes where, for example, you have two characters uh, having a fight. And one character, this is the other person. And then in the prose, you have literally in the running, you have, oh, snap, uh, <laughs> Jim reacts or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and so it's really more about, it's all about the read, really. It's all about kind of what do you want the audience or the reader to experience in that moment? Yeah, you're doing a service for the reader, but that will, that is, it's very contentious that some yep. people will hate that. So Absolutely. be careful about it in your own writing, unless you're mimicking the style of that show in a spec or something. I'm definitely more on the alien side. I'm more of a minimalistic writer. So when I wrote my, uh, how to get away with murder spec, that was definitely a, an aspect of it that I struggled with, but now I know better. This summer, Alien versus How to Get Away with Murder by Zack Snyder. <laughs> you you lost me at Zack Snyder. <laughs> <laughs> He's, he has to do everything. He has to do it. everything. Let's look at everybody's favorite step: feedback, getting feedback. How does that work? <laughs> so, in the writers' room, once you take that first draft back, you are um, once again depends on the room, but most likely you're going to get notes directly from a showrunner or co-EP, and then you will take it. Go back and do a second pass, bring it back to the room. Uh, you might repeat that step however many times the showrunner is, is happy with. They will do their final polish on it, and then it goes off to the network and studio. And then, sir, so they give their notes on a phone call to the showrunner. Another rewrite happens, whether that goes back to the writer or whether the showrunner chooses to do it themselves. Um, then you end up with what's called the network studio draft, um, which will often be the first one that is actually released to the crew for production. So uh, the props department can start thinking about what props they want and all that kind of thing. Then another pass will, will happen at some stage. Once again, 
depending on the thing, it could be either the writer or the showrunner doing that or the room. Uh, and that will end up in the production draft. And that is usually the final draft that you will end up with before it goes to shooting. And then you get all these multiple stages of revisions and different colored pages that come into it when they run into problems. And, and you know, the showrunner wants to polish up this dialogue and that kind of thing. So what you're saying is to prepare for that step, I should like ask every person I meet on the street to review my script and give me notes. Is that, <laughs> is that how this works? No, not necessarily. But, you know, what I would say is uh, certainly pass your script around to friends and your writing group and that kind of thing and get that feedback and then be continually redrafting it. You don't necessarily have to like label it as a whole new draft every time. Um, yeah, be consistent with the I feel like that's like one of the things uh, uh, that uh, quote unquote baby writers uh, struggle with is the constant labeling of every script because you get lost in those. Different oh, drafts. yeah. Don't like it. It actually looks very amateur to put on the front page of your thing like version eight, oh, especially God. if you're sending it to like an agent or a manager or something like that. They don't want to know that this is version 20 like, or final draft, whatever that yeah, means. It's, tell them that it's the first draft and you just churned it out and you're brilliant. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Then you can get into the draft when they start giving you feedback. You just on uh, change the date on it and be like, oh, 2008. Oh, I mean, uh, 2016. <laughs> yeah. That, that is another thing too, is like never give people drafts from like, that are dated too long ago because if you're trying to sell it or whatever, because they're like, oh, this has been going around for a while and no one wanted it. But that, that's another point. So yeah. coming back to uh, feedback on a TV show, once that production draft is out and all the revisions and stuff, that's when the other departments and like the line producer will come in and start breaking down costs and, and all that sort of thing. And also uh, cast members will often have notes on your script. So a lot of shows are very strategic about when they actually give the scripts to the cast um, because they, they are very opinionated about what the characters should do and say and and that's a f fair enough like to be honest i sat in on a um, a note session from all of the Muppet performers. And these are people that have been playing Kermit and Miss Piggy and stuff for literally 20 years since, since Henson. But uh, a lot of writer's rooms aren't receptive to hearing the actor's feedback <laughs> on stuff. It really depends on how much neutral respect yeah. goes back and forth there. Given the sheer amount of notes you'll be getting, either production or actors or whatever it is, it's really about not taking things personally. It's people's opinions on an execution. It's not people crapping on your idea or people crapping on your characters or your dialogue it's really about mm -hmm. that specific their issue with that specific thing on a personal level you can uh, just go to friends and family as we said or if you have a running group um, we will be talking about in a future episode uh, about ways you can get feedback from people and kind of construct kind of like an onion of people uh, so to speak not literally onions but uh, you get ogres have layers <laughs> so, uh, so once you get that feedback there's obviously going to be the rewriting step as I said the showrunner is going to be doing their kind of like final pass and rewriting you the room might come in and rewrite your jokes and that sort of thing um, once the showrunner does that final pass they will rewrite you anywhere from 20 to 100% um, of your work so uh, it at will least be, at least oh yeah at least, at least 100% at least 100% of your work will be rewritten take it from us um, but so yeah heavily is, is the point um, the reason that is is, is a they need to put their voice back into the script and make it consistent throughout the show it's that whole kind of you know the showrunner is the creative voice of the show so they want it to sound like them and also they are a much better writer than you and they know what they're doing so trust them for example in the simpsons writers room there was a guy called john swartzfelder or 
Schwarzweiler. <laughs> Schwarzwälder. He was considered one of their best writers. He is my favorite writer from The Simpsons. He wrote stuff like uh, Itchy and Scratchy Land and uh, other brilliant things. Um, so he required what they said minimal rewriting, and that was 50%. So that's like the least that someone who was a brilliant off-the-wall writer could be expected to be rewritten. Now, there's kind of the controversial issue of credit. Uh, most EP or higher level writers who rewrite lower level writers will abstain from wanting credit on a script because they understand that lower level writers need that credit more and the money attached to that credit. Yeah, just to quickly explain how it, it works, like we said, uh, it kind of like rotates through from most senior to least senior in terms of who gets that draft. The same thing happens with credit for that for those drafts and that kind of thing even if the room rewrites at 100 you're still going to get the kind of like um written by credit because it's just kind of almost arbitrarily assigned for comedy mostly i mean drama yeah. is a little bit more clear but uh yeah, so, a rotation schedule certainly comedy. in comedy it just basically rotates like episode one is going to get credited to the showrunner episode seven is going to get credited to the story editor or the, the the staff writer kind of thing so um that's how credit would usually work in that situation but as you were saying alex yeah i mean all shows will have have kind of the showrunner rewriting their lower level writers, but uh, most of them will abstain from credit. And uh, there are a few examples to the contrary. Uh, the most controversial one is uh, Matthew Weiner from Mad Men, who uh, wouldn't always want credit on a script, but you could argue that it was deserved. Uh, so it's kind of like a gray area because he did rewrite those scripts. So mm -hmm. you can't argue that he doesn't deserve the credit, but it's more about... Um, it's more just an understanding that, that happens to go on, you know, that these other writers need these credits to kind of like for their membership to the guild and to build their resume and that sort of thing. So it's just kind of understood that showrunners will allow that to happen in most circumstances. But we still love you, Matthew Weiner. If yes. you want to come into the podcast. <laughs> if you would like to hire Alex to write for one of your shows, he promises he won't care if you rewrite him. So what does that look like at home? Like, what can you take from uh, that rewriting step? It's obviously not going to be quite the same level of um, immediate feedback and redrafting at home. It's probably going to take a little bit longer. Um, sometimes you can put a script away in a drawer and come back to it months later. You know, I think it's a really good idea to actually get some space from your draft when you're not working to that kind of very strict TV schedule. You get too close to it and you fail to notice things about it, whether it's story or dialogue, because you're, you're reading your idea of of your story in your head, not literally what's on the page. So you can miss stuff like typos, even 12 months into a script's existence. You know, people will be like, hey, by the way, you totally misspelled this or there's two words in a row. And you're like, oh, wow, I didn't even see that. Yeah, one way to actually catch typos is to read the script from the bottom up and read every sentence from the end because in terms of the syntax of the sentence, your brain won't understand what's happening or like mm -hmm. what, won't understand what, what you're reading. So it's really going to be more focused on the specific Words. Yeah, psychologically, the way that we read is actually to take key words, like anchor kind of words. So you might take the first word of the sentence, one or two words in the middle and the word at the end, and then your brain just reconstructs what it thinks that sentence said. Most of the time, it's fairly accurate, especially if you're very familiar with the work, but then it's not going to allow you to notice those little things that you need to notice. So that's why it's good to give it to other people who have fresh eyes. Uh, and also, just as good as you think your first draft may be, you're going to look back on it uh, later after having cut five pages yeah, and be like, wow, always. that was all crap or that was totally unnecessary. I'm really glad I didn't send that out to people. I feel like a script is only as uh, finished as 
as its latest draft uh, because people will always have notes and you can always rewrite whatever you want. But at some point, you got to call it quits on some yeah. level. And usually that happens when maybe I know deep down that there are a couple of issues with the script, but I don't know the solutions. So at that point, mm-hmm. I put it aside. That's yeah, really my... there's always going to be stuff you know you could technically improve. But if it's going to require so much effort that you're going to have to re-break the whole story and redraft it again, maybe your effort is better spent on working on your next script and then coming back to it later when it's relevant or when someone wants to buy it or make it or whatever and they have their own notes now uh, let's look at some takeaways so number one tv works on a very specific schedule in a very kind of rigorous process uh it's so important to practice every step of that even before you get stuffed Right, and the second big takeaway is you gotta understand what each of the steps are. Uh, so there's the generating ideas or inception, there's the, bah, there's the pitching, articulating or phrasing of the ideas, mm-hmm. there's the outlining both on the broad macro aspect and the individual beats of the story. There's the drafting, and through the whole process that you did before drafting, you should avoid successfully the kind of like a blank page syndrome. And then finally, there's kind of the taking notes, feedback, and rewriting aspect of it. It sounds simple from an overview like that, but there are a lot of tiny little kind of like cogs and working pieces that you need to understand and practice. Right. And uh, what are some resources we can give to our dear listeners? I think one that I found uh, very handy and uh, Vince Gilligan is uh, a god, literally. Uh, <laughs> Wait, who, who's Vince Gilligan? Oh, I don't know. Just some guy who created uh, Breaking Bad, possibly the greatest uh, show ever made. I don't know. Who knows? So he has a whole article about the writer's room process and what that was like for him on Breaking Bad. And now obviously they've gone over to, to Better Call Saul. He obviously worked on the X-Files and, and other great shows for many, many years. So he knows exactly what he's talking about. Um, we're going to give you a link to that. It was a, an article in The Guardian. And there's also a video of him explaining a similar kind of thing about how he works in the writer's room. And we'll give you a link to that as well. Cool. And uh, on my side, I also have a little uh, video from the Academy Awards. Uh, the Academy Award every year spotlights a few key screenwriters in their guild. One of those is Dustin Lance Black, who is an Academy Award winner for Milk. And he kind of walks you through his own outlining process and his own writing process. And specifically, uh, the way he outlines, uh, we talked earlier about having index cards on a board. Uh, But the way he does things is he has this like giant table uh, with literally stacks of index cards for every scene. The top card in the stack will usually kind of be the more uh, up-to-date developed version of it. And then underneath, there's kind of the earlier drafts or like interviews, printed periodicals, images, whatever kind of like inspiration he may have for that specific scene. And it's really kind of a cool way of uh, outlining uh, that I found really interesting. All right. So we've uh, come to the end of our episode on the the writer's room process and how you can take that home. We would like to thank everyone for taking the time to listen to us. Uh, We would love some reviews. If you would like to go to paperteam.co slash iTunes. Once again, that's .co, not .com, paperteam.co slash iTunes. And any reviews you give us on that will help us get new listeners, build our community, and bring more cool stuff to you. As always, you can also find us online. I am at TV Calling. I am at underscore NJ Watson. And if you have any feedback, opinions, hate mail, uh, Matthew Weiner, I love you. (laughs) uh, You can email us at ask 
at paperteen.co. Yeah, uh, so Robert McKee and Matthew Weiner are going to be sending <laughs> us some hate mail. We're just building, slowly building a list of enemies and reasons why we'll never actually get stopped on a show. We love time. you, Matthew Weiner. <laughs> but next week, uh, we're going to return back to our series on kind of meeting people and networking and look at following up and taking that next step uh, with people that you've met and networked with. Cool. Uh, we'll see you next week.